This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Yeah, let me just start with prayer. Um, Father, Isaiah can be um, a little overwhelming at times, and I think you are saying quite a bit in this particular chapter, Lord, um, even just volume. Lord, I pray that as we spend some time this morning just considering your words that you speak to us, um, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that you would illumine our minds. I pray that you would stir our affections for you and that through your word, uh, we would just be refreshed and encouraged knowing that you are our God and and you are the one that tells us, fear not, because you're with us. Lord, I pray that you would just give me clarity um, and help this be encouraging to us this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So last week I kind of ended and, you know, I feel like it's, you're not a, uh, you're like not a legitimate pastor if like once every now and then you don't remind everyone that the chapters and verse divisions are not in the original text. <laughs> it's like one of those like text, you just have to say that every now and then. Um, and I think we, you know, it's, there was thought that went in where to put them. You know, it's not like someone in history just decided to throw out chapter and verses wherever. Um, there was some thought that went into like how to divide it up. But really we're sort of following um, one long poetic section that started. And so, Last week, when we ended in verse 31, I talked about waiting on the Lord. And he goes from encouraging God's people to wait on the Lord to sort of this, this, uh, this scene where he's drawing the nations in and saying, hey, let's talk this out. Let, let's compare what I've done and who I am with what you've got to offer. So, so he's encouraging you and I at the end of the last section to, to wait on the Lord. And we talked a little bit about what that means. It's just like how waiting on the Lord is almost synonymous with, with our actions of drawing near to God. Whether that's in prayer, whether it's in the word, whether it's in worship, whether that's uh, looking uh, for how to glorify and honor him. But, but I would say that Paul saying, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever, do all to the glory. Do all with the glory of God is like the thing that's at your forefront. And so I would say that's what Isaiah is saying. As you wait on the Lord, you're considering his glory and his majesty and what he's doing. And so when he goes into this section where he's sort of uh, talking with the nations and saying like, all right, now that I've, I've, I've told you the church, I've told you my people to, to wait on me to act, he kind of turns and addresses the nations more broadly. And that's the section that, that begins this next chapter. And I, I think what is happening here, and I think I entitled the intro like Kingdom Struggle, um, I think there is this internal struggle, and there is for me, so I'll just speak for myself, and you guys can, if the shoe fits, wear it. But there's this internal struggle for me of drawing near and waiting on God to act and looking to see him operate in the world, and then just everything I see around me. Like, I, uh, things I want to, like, jump into, or stuff that I think that needs fixed, or uh, the tension of just, like, everyday life, like, things are going on. And even as a Christian that is 
looking at scripture and, and, and sort of trying to see things through a particular lens, a biblical lens, it feels like there's a lot I ought to do. It just feels like I should be doing these things because the life that I live and, and just like being a person walking around, you know, like there, I, I desire for God's kingdom to be built. Uh, I, I pray for his kingdom come on earth is to heaven. And if I don't jump in, it's not going to come. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, kind of how I feel. But Isaiah is saying over here, wait on the Lord. Draw near to him and wait on what he is going to do to build his kingdom. And there's, and that's where I feel like this, there's the struggle. <laughs> Why would I pray for his kingdom come if I'm not going to do anything? And if I just wait on the Lord, like Isaiah said, then what, what's going to, nothing will happen. You know, like, what, what, how do I resolve those things a little bit? And so that's sort of how I see the, this, this kingdom struggle. And in, in, in this chapter, I think Isaiah is giving us an answer with uh, four beholds. He's just like, listen up, behold. <laughs> And I think he says it five times. And in true sermon form, I only have three. And we're going to smush one together, three points. Um, but we're going we're gonna to look at these behold. He's like, he, he, uh, it's like Jesus walking around. And he's talking. And all of a sudden he says, truly, truly. Like, hey, this is where I want you to focus in and sort of pay attention to what I'm saying. And to sort of set up this answer, this kingdom struggle, this idea where, uh, where he's saying, behold, I want you to like pay attention to what I'm going to say he sort of sets up, before we get to the beholds of starting verse 11, he sort of sets up this idea of him uh, addressing the nation. So he's just addressed us and said, wait on the Lord. And now God turns and addresses the nations. And I think it's, in, I think it's kind of important to see uh, a little bit of the context here. Look at verse 41, um, chapter 41, verse 1. Just says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the, the nations, is another word you could use that. Let the, some translations say that. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us draw near together for judgment. So that's God looking out on the world and saying, hey, nations of the world, come here. <laughs> Let's talk. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you kind of how it is, basically. And he goes on to say, who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? And my first thought was, who, who's that? <laughs> you know, like, who stirred this person up that we just know about? Um, and it's, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about this idea of the servant in Isaiah a lot, especially during an Advent. And we're gonna hit this uh, even in the next chapter where he talks about his servant who he's pleased in. But this is kind of the first time as we're moving through Isaiah, we get a picture of an individual that God has raised up to accomplish his purposes. Uh, look at what it says in verse two. Who stirred up one from these, whom victory meets at every step? It could say, whom righteousness calls to follow. It's like, an, it's a weird, interesting thing. It's like, who's, it's almost like, who has stirred up this one who was just walking my righteous path that I have determined for him? I think a New Testament way to say it is like, who is walking in the good works I have set before him? You know, the, the, this is, it's sort of the sense in which God has raised up this individual. So he's talking to the nations. He's like, I've raised up this individual who is walking my righteous path, who's, who's doing my plan, and he tramples kings underfoot. So he's talking to the nations and saying, I've raised up this individual that is crushing you. <laughs> 
I'm the one who has done this. And it's, in this particular chapter, there's a lot of like debate within the commentaries on like who he's talking about particularly. And I think Isaiah is doing that on purpose because we have later, we're gonna get a lot of clarity and he's gonna talk about this, this King Cyrus, which is actually the uh, part of the Babylonian empire. If you know the book of Daniel, it's a, uh, you know, this, the idea that it's a, it's a, uh, the super, the world's superpower that comes and drags off Israel into captivity. And so in Isaiah later, he's particularly calling him out by name over a hundred years before he's born and saying, this is what I've determined to happen. This is what he's gonna do. This is what his name is. And I'm letting you know this because I'm God. And so he's giving us a little taste of that right now. He's saying, I'm the one that raises up and orchestrates how history is gonna go down. I'm the one, he's talking to the nations again, and God is saying, I'm the one who determines how history is gonna play out. And then he ends that section. Verse four, he says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. I am he. Uh, in what would have been the most common Bible of Jesus' time, the Septuagint, that phrase right there is ego I me. Ego I me. I am the one. That's who, I'm the one. Jesus uses that phrase in a controversial way that almost gets him killed. Look at John eight fifty eight. I should have that on the screen. I think this is important because I've been kind of saying as we walk through this over and over again, this primarily, this Isaiah primarily is for you. Isaiah was written primarily for God's people post-resurrection. Jesus says, he's arguing with the Jews and they're like, hey, you're not very old. You're, you know, how do you know what Abraham would have liked or said or thought of? Are you around before Abraham? And he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, behold, like pay attention. I say to you, before Abraham was, ego I me, I am. And they don't think, they don't look at him and say, what are you getting at? They try to stone him. They know exactly what he's claiming. He's using this phrase from the Old Testament and he's saying, before Abraham was, I'm the one. And they just, they say blasphemy and they try to stone him. I thought, and you know, just to make the point a little stronger, later they go to arrest Jesus and John. John brings this up quite a bit. In, 18, they, in chapter 18 of, uh, in John, they go to arrest him. What verse am I starting on last? Verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, and this is while he's being arrested at night, and said to them, who do you seek? Interesting. <laughs> like, like, just tell me what you're here for, basically. He knows what they're here for. He's like, you say it out loud, basically. They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered them, ego I me. I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. 
just the statement of who he was, and they fall down. These, this is the group coming to arrest him. Jesus says, Ego I me, making a claim to who he truly is, and they came and handle it. So you go back to Isaiah, we talk about the one that God has risen up, who has performed and done this, verse four of chapter 41, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and the last, I am with him, or I am with the last, ego I me, I am he. We have to remember in this struggle between what God is calling us to do to, to wait on the Lord and to bring his kingdom, the one who has been risen up to direct all of history to build the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king that is directing all of history. So if that's true, look at what he says in verse eight. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A couple of things we have to keep front of mind, and I, I won't go there, but if you go to Romans 8, or sorry, Romans 4, he actually makes the point that all of us believers are offspring of Abraham. All believers are offspring of Abraham. And so here is Isaiah being spoken to you, reminding you, saying, offspring of Abraham, my friend. Here's the, the Lord of history, the ruler, the king of everything that's gonna happen, looking at you and saying, relax, friend. I've got you. There is a tension there. There is a stress between what I'm asking you to do and my kingdom coming on earth but I'm in charge of the arc of history and you're my friend. So he gives us then, after this setting up this context, after speaking to the world and saying, who is the one who determines everything that comes to pass? Me. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who does that. I'm the king and I'm the one who's your friend, my people. So relax and now I'm gonna give you behold. Now I'm gonna draw your attention to some really important things for you to consider as you're involved in what I'm doing, what Jesus is doing as he builds his kingdom. The first one he says, behold, he's conquering. You could say a longer drawn out version of that is behold, I'm defeating all the enemies so that I can build my kingdom. <laughs> Behold, he's conquering. We're doing um, the uh, question and answer catechism with JJ in the morning. And we've been doing that for a long time, just part of our family worship. And the most recent question is how does God, or 
How does Jesus, I think it says, how does Jesus Christ execute the office of king? How does Jesus Christ execute the office of king? And part of the answer, because the full answer is very long, not very long, but part of the answer, whether it's London Baptist Confession or Westminster Confession, is he's restraining and conquering all of your and his enemies. How does Jesus execute the office of king? He is currently restraining and conquering all of your and his enemies. Which is exactly what Isaiah is telling you right here when he says, behold, behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who are at war against you shall be nothing at all. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Behold, he's conquering. (laughs) That's the reality about what he's doing. So as we sit in this tension and we draw near and we we look to worship and see and behold and, and, and just have a sense of the glory and majesty of God and, and who he is and what he's doing. And we're, we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we see all of these things, whether it's struggles in our home, whether it's struggles in our church, whether it's struggles in our country, whatever, in our city. We see all of these things that just looks like chaos and like nothing is happening and that, that there's no possible way that you and I can make any difference in the little tiny things or the big things. God is looking at us and saying, behold, I am conquering. I am executing the office of king as I restrain and conquer all of my and your enemies. I'm on it. (laughs) Which is why he ends this section and says, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. I'm the one who helps you. I think I want to make just the idea of Jesus conquering enemies, um, your enemies, you know, kind of like, I don't know, that makes me a little uncomfortable, right? Like, I wasn't, I, I didn't hang out with anyone this week, and they're like, dude, can I just tell you about my enemies for a second? Like, no one said that to me. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, you know, there are definitely, God puts people in our lives that are often working against us. Um, and I think there is a real sense in which, as, you know, uh, Jesus says, love your enemies, right? Our, our tension to say, this, these people who are working against me, I want to think the best, right? We should want to, because th- we want to love them and care for them. We're not talking about uh, not considering or not drawing near or not, um, or, or, or thinking less of people that would sort of be working against us. But when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is assuming you have some enemies. You have people in your life that are working against the God's good gift or good designs for this world. 
Like that's a reality. On top of that, we can continue those layers. The, the common and I think valuable way to express it is at the end of the day, sin, Satan, and death are the biggest enemies. Sin manifests itself in people around you. So we can't completely like separate that from, from individuals who would be working against God's design for his good kingdom. But, but, but even Paul says the behind those things, the, the root of that is the, the prince of the power of the air. We're, the way that we conquer our enemies is we destroy every argument against the knowledge of God with our words. <laughs> we're, we're not called to pick up swords and conquer our enemies. <laughs> but we are called to speak the truth in love in a way that destroys arguments against the knowledge of God. Because God, God is here and he's presenting himself to the world and people push back against that. But Jesus is showing up in Isaiah. He's executing his office as king and he's saying, behold, I'm conquering. I am working in the world to restrain and conquer all of your and my enemies. And Paul says basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 24, he says, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Why? Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be put to the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Saying Jesus must reign as king because he's actively working to put all his enemies under his feet. So as we think about this kingdom struggle as we uh, wrestle with the idea of like all of these things I see in the world around me that give me angst that don't feel like God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and Isaiah is saying I know that you see this I, I know that you recognize what's going on but I'm encouraging to you to wait on the Lord I'm encouraging you to draw near to him I'm encouraging you to, to have a sense of his glory and his goodness and his majesty I'm encouraging you to, to worship and we feel that tension. He's saying, behold, truly, truly, I'm saying to you, he is conquering right now. He's doing that. He's working in this. I thought to myself, well, where do I see that? Where do I see Jesus at work currently putting all enemies under his feet. I have a couple of examples. And I, uh, I think one of the ways that he is doing that is a me the measure of unity and enjoyment that he's brought even between the two churches that meet here. And I, I, I want to put that in a little bit of context because every time I talk to pastors at CCD, they're just like, wait, you're sharing a building with the church and you guys do stuff and get along and like each other and that? And I'm like, uh-huh, you know, Jess uh, is just sitting next to me normally, you know, like, <laughs> uh-huh, you know? <laughs> so, and and there, it's just like, it's not part, like churches sharing a space together and considering each other and wanting and just desiring to do ministry and work together is just not normal. 
Like that's not like a typical thing. Usually churches are, are getting their boundaries and are doing their thing and the other church is their boundaries and doing their thing and they're sharing the space, but they're actually not, there's no unity amongst the groups. I mean, sadly, that's kind of the case, you know? I think it's really cool that as we've prayed for that, there have been opportunities for that. I think it's really cool that we had uh, Jess from Scum basically lead the thing with the women's retreat and I heard a lot of good things about that and people were encouraged. I think it's great to see that uh, Gilbert got to go with the men's retreat. I think it's cool that the staff interact with each other and we chat about Mark or we chat about what we're doing and you know we're looking at Christmas Eve service is Sunday and just like, how are we gonna do that? And we're like, hey, can we do it on your schedule? Because you've done things on our schedule with the intensive and there's, there's just like a lot of unity and cooperation there. And I think as Jesus prays, Lord, I pray that they would be one as we are one. Satan is saying, I want division everywhere. I don't want unity. I don't want cooperation. I want division. And Jesus is out here conquering and making every enemy his footstool and saying, not here. Here I'm gonna bring a measure of unity because I'm in charge. I think it's been just amazing to see that love that the people in this community have had for Drew and Becca and baby Luke. You know, I don't think, Becca was even sharing, and we talked about this a little bit in our prayer this morning. There was no, they messaged me about praying for them this weekend. There was like no way that was gonna fit in my schedule. And I was like, man, this is so important. I was like, Lord, you really just gonna have to work something out. Eight people showed up at the hospital yesterday afternoon with very little notice to take time to pray with them and pray for baby Luke. I thought that was amazing, super encouraging. And they said it was very encouraging for them. And then when we're driving home, JJ's like, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm wiping my tears. And I was like, I was like, <laughs> like he was he was reenacting like the prayer. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's cute. I was like, because first I was annoyed. I was like, what in the world sound are you doing back there, child? So that that was his impression. I think that's Jesus making every enemy his footstool and conquering right in front of us. I think that's amazing. I think that's God at work. Maybe I'll, this is the last thing I'll kind of share, just to, to think more broadly, you know, like that's things within our community. Um, I have been meeting with folks at CCD for a long time. Well, not a long time, three years now. So it's been neat to kind of see uh, just pastors in the community and like what our conversation has been and, and sort of how that shifted. And we had a gentleman, we had a gentleman come into our group and share some things. And it was just like, just having a rough year, you know, uh, like living, I don't know, living 2020 over again, but in 2023. Um, and the first thing the entire group thought about, questioning him on, and oriented our conversation around is, man, in all of that, how are you able to draw near to God and enjoy him and rest in who he is? I was just taken back at like the reflex of these men and women to encourage this man into rest with God. I was new, but I would say three years ago, that was not the default posture. And I think some of the guys 
that I know would probably say the same thing because God is working to conquer, to make every enemy his footstool and to refine his church so that we would draw near and worship him deep from our hearts. I think he's genuinely doing that. And Isaiah is trying to tell us, hey, there is a tension there, but for real though, even with the chaos of everything that's going on, I mean, he's historically, he's in a place where they're about to be dragged off into captivity in like the worst possible scenario. And he's reminding them of the good news that God is still on his throne, that Jesus is now the king ruling and reigning and he is conquering. Now, verse 15 kind of introduces the second behold. Behold, he's conquering. Another thing he wants to draw our attention to is behold, you're enlisted. Behold, you're enlisted. You're part of the team. And he uses some interesting language. But I think it's making, well, let's just read it real quick. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. (laughs) Behold, you're a threshing sledge. Just didn't quite fit in the outline. What in the world? <laughs> uh, I had to ask ChatGPT this. Um, but threshing. You take the grain and you beat it out so that you can separate the chaff that is no value whatsoever, burns in a fire, gets taken away by the wind, and actually get the good grain out of it. Produce what's valuable. He's saying, I'm going to make you an effective threshing sledge. To, as, you, as you interact with the world, as you draw near to me, as you wait on me, I'm going to make you effective at producing good and beautiful things out of everything that's around you. I want to go back to chapter 28. He brings up this metaphor a lot. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 27, he says, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Okay, apparently dill is different. Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick, okay? And cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Here's what I think God is saying. And I said this when we went over that. He's saying, I've designed things a certain way. (laughs) And if you try to farm this product the way you're supposed to farm this product, it ain't gonna work for you. You're not gonna get anything good out of it. And vice versa. I've designed the world to operate a certain way. What he's telling us in verse 15 of chapter 41, when he's making us us a threshing sledge, that's a mouthful, 
when he's making us able to produce grain, he's saying, I, as you draw near to me, as you see my glory, as you understand my word, as you understand what Jesus is doing as he's making every enemy's footstool, as you begin to, your eyes begin to open up to see like what I'm actually doing in the world. I'm gonna make you effective, an effective tool designed to produce good things in the world the right way because I've designed the world the way it should work. You're enlisted. I'm building my kingdom. I'm making every enemy my footstool. I'm conquering. Behold, I'm going to make you effective as you draw near to me. I'm going to make you effective. You're not going to make you effective. You're not going to figure it out. God's saying as you draw near to me, as you draw near to God, as you worship him, as you see his word and his glory and his majesty, he is going to make you effective. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. I think that, well... I know, I know that regularly my pride and my ability to do what I think I am able to do gets in the way of God being effective in and through me. That's kind of a mouthful. I'm trying to say like, because I know better and I don't draw near to God, I'm often not an effective threshing sledge. And look at what God is saying. He's saying that when we are enlisted, when, when we're effective and we're, we're producing something worthwhile, like grain to produce bread out of, out of just this wheat, when we're producing something worthwhile, whether it's in our homes, in our relationships, in our families, in our jobs, in the world, when we're producing something worthwhile, the result of that, when it's done by God and through God, is rejoicing in him. It says, you will rejoice in the Lord. And I think a good way to recognize when you're leaning more on your ability than what he's doing in and through you is you rejoice in yourself. <laughs> Look at what I did. Now, most of us are not the Instagram humble brag types, you know. <laughs> we know better than that. <laughs> but, but maybe you flip it around. When things start to go uh, yeah, when things start to go poorly, who do you blame? Kind of yourself. Maybe that's just me. You freak out. I need to fix. I need to do this. But it's because you were doing it all in the first place. You stress out over yourself because you were the one patting yourself on the back when things were going great. And I think God works in our lives in a particular way to help us with that. Like he wants us to, he wants us to be productive. He wants us to be a, a, a sharp threshing sledge to just crush mountains and create bread and, and beautiful things out of what we do and who we are. But he doesn't want us to do that thinking it's because we're so great. He wants us to do that as we draw near to him. And when, we, when things happen, we're, we, our default is just to rejoice in who he is, to rejoice in who he is, not who we are. 
And so to do that, look at what he, look at, I think this is what he's kind of helping us with. In verse 17, he says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. And he goes on to kind of talk about all these extreme circumstances where it's like, when you're in this extreme place where you obviously can't fix it yourself, I will step in and do something wonderful. We almost have to be there. We don't have to, but he's so kind to bring us into these circumstances where we're not relying on ourselves so we could learn to rely on who he is and what he's doing. That's why he ends in verse 20. He says, why do I do it that way? Why do I wait till everyone is desperate? Verse 20, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together. I don't know if you could, if there are other Hebrew words for know, understand, consider. I don't know if they could, Isaiah probably would have. So you could completely understand that the hand of the Lord has done this that the hand of the Lord has done this. He wants, he's conquering, he's enlisted you. He wants you to be effective, but in a way that you understand he's the one that's done this. And when we pull the levers and we get what we want out of everything, he has nothing to do with it. (laughs) And we don't rejoice in him. So the last behold, the last behold is behold the struggle. <laughs> this is the, this whole section, he's, he says them a lot. Um, if you're in your, in your ESV, they, them, he's talking about the idols. And some of you have a little subtitle that says, you know, the futility of idols. The struggle isn't ultimately what I see and what God has called me to do. The real struggle is what God has called me to do in every other system I have in my head that I think can make that happen. What God has called me to do is to rest in him, to draw near to him, to worship him, to submit to him. God is like calling me to orient myself totally around him so that I can see him do all of these wonderful things kingdom producing things. The problem is I have a bunch of other options that look very effective. He says, I don't know, it's hard. Uh, He says, let them, them, he's talking about the idols. Like convince me is basically what he's saying. Verse 22, let them bring them and, and tell us what's to happen. Like, hey, yeah, you you um you have a way to to bring the kingdom. You have a you have a a method to to do what God is saying He's going to do, but better. Okay, how's that? How are you gonna? How's that going to happen? Like, like show me what is going to happen in the future. <laughs> prove to me that you understand and have de- prove to me that you are God and can direct all of history. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. And then I like, he's talking about these inanimate objects. And he's like, you know what? Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. <laughs> like, do something. <laughs> Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. 
an abomination is he who chooses you. I wrote uh, in my Bible, savage. <laughs> and I didn't even write that this time around. <laughs> an abomination is he who chooses you. And then he kind of goes on and reminds them, reminds these idols that he's the one who's actually directed the course of history. It says, behold, these idols are a delusion. This is verse 29 at the end. He says, behold, these idols are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty winds. The struggle is that there's no other system, process, to-do, strategy that can bring the kingdom of God other than God himself. Whether that's with your friends, whether that's as you think about your home, whether that's with Emmaus, scum of the earth, Denver, the United States, the West, the globe, wherever you want to go, there's no other way for the kingdom of God to come except through drawing near and trusting him to conquer. Because when you draw near to him, and you see his glory and you rejoice in him, when, you, when he makes you effective and that causes you to praise and worship him, when things are oriented around who he is and what he's doing, that's when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. I want to I close by just giving maybe a couple examples. Um, and, and maybe this connects with some of the things we've been talking about. Hopefully it does, I guess. <laughs> as God speaks to you through this prophecy, as he communicates to you directly, I think what he's trying to tell his his church, now he was talking to the nations and come back and talking to his people. He's telling you that there is really no joy and peace without genuine worship of him. There really is no joy and peace for anyone in the world. There is not true joy and peace without from the heart worship of God. Any other route is idolatrous. And it isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. And I think there is a place then, and, and this is, you know, you go back through Isaiah. There's a place then where if that's where we're at, we humble ourselves and say, Lord, change my heart. Stir my affections. Help me see and worship and value you like you really are. He wants to answer that prayer. I think that was like the name of our whole series last time. I don't remember what it was, but the Lord waits. He's asking for us to recognize that and humbly come to him and stir our affections so that we would desire to worship him. I can tell you he wants to answer that prayer and he will answer that prayer. We can plead with him for that and he will bring us joy and peace if our desire is to have that in genuine worship of who he is. He will do that. 
He's also designed, this is the second thing I'll leave you with. He's also designed us to thresh a certain way. And I think that's what he was getting at in chapter 28. Like you can, you know, you can't, can't we don't thresh grapes, we squish them or whatever. You know, they're like, there's a way to harvest food. <laughs> like I'm like so detached from it. You know, we can, <laughs> I, I, I should have just spent some time in like a community garden so I could have had like better a friend of mine illustrations or something. But there is a way to produce bread out of wheat. And I think that we live in a world that wants genuinely to see the kingdom of God come if we were just to describe it. If we were to say, oh, hey, you know, I just want our neighbors to care for each other more. I want more people to be available for those who are struggling in the hospital. I want there to be a genuine sense of community and open honesty with the people that I work with. No one's going to be like, get out of here. I hate that, you know? But everyone has another way to get there that isn't God's way. And you do too, <laughs> at home or whatever you're thinking. You know, we all want to produce good out of all the wonderful things God's given us, every which way but the way that God has designed it. <laughs> And it's not going to work. It's not going to work. I think um, maybe just a, a meta example of that. You know, uh, we can, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to get into the, we can bemoan the breakdown of the family and all the charge thing that goes with that. Um, but, but just think of our connection with our parents, you know, like that, let's, let's talk about that breakdown of the family. Like I know a lot of us who, uh, have myself included graduated and moved on, you know, and I know people who have rightfully, I think just wanted to like relocate to be around their parents to honor and love them and care for them. And there's nothing, I think that's like a good and godly thing that that's like stirred in people's hearts. But like there are, there, there's literally an epidemic of loneliness. There's a church, and we'll send this out in the epistle. There's a church doing like just a conversation around that. People are very lonely. And that's not unrelated to how independent we want to be. We want to do it our way. I want the church that does my things. I want the friends that are just like me. I want the job with all the people who are exactly the same yada, 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 why am I so lonely? <laughs> God's like, I, you can't get bread out of grain that way. <laughs> like I've designed structures and systems in the world to operate a certain way so that people can flourish and do well. I think that that's just been... Um, you know, whether it's the foster care system, whether it's even just oh, people are uh, been wonderful to Gene through his his struggles. You know, I met the ambulance person that picked him up off the ground because she came and brought flowers to his room. Yeah, she just saw how lonely he was and didn't know anyone who knew him. You know, and we got to talk and was so thankful for our church and it was just like she had a heart for him and it was wonderful. It was beautiful. You know, and I'm th and you know I think someone said to me like. Thank the Lord that there's still emergency workers out there like that. And I was like, yeah, she's great, you know? Her name is Tara. I'll, I'll let her know where, she wants to know where Jean is being moved to. 
But Gene has very much been blessed by our community, but needed it because he has been alone. And I'm thankful for us. And I'm thankful that God has raised up people to, to encourage others and like come around people who are, who are in that position. But a lot of us want that, but we don't want the other ways that God has designed that to work. So as we struggle with God telling us to draw near to him, to wait on him, to worship him, to love him, and we look around, all these things that are going on in our homes, in our country, in our church, or whatever it is, he's trying to encourage us. Isaiah's trying to encourage us, behold, he's on his throne and he's conquering, I promise. I tried to give some examples of what God is doing and let that be an encouragement to you. Behold, you're part of it. You're enlisted in this. He is going to make you effective. He's going to make you a, a sharp threshing sledge <laughs> as you draw near to him so that you rejoice in what he's doing and you see his glory. It's just a wonderful feedback loop of resting and enjoying in God. But there is a struggle. There's these alternative systems out there always advertising you a better way. In your heart, in the world, in sin, Satan, and everything else that's going on there, there's all these external things telling you, no, there's another way. And as Christians, God is telling you, no, wait on me, draw near to me, rejoice in me, and I will make you effective. And you will make a difference in the world. Let's pray and thank him for that. Father, thank you so much for these promises. Lord, I pray that um, I pray that we would take them to heart. I pray that I would take them to heart, Lord. Um, it's so easy to believe that it's easy for me to believe that doing and planning or strategizing or working harder and harder is, um, it's easy for me to be tempted to think that that is the way to see your kingdom come and at the expense of worship of you. Lord, I pray that you would help me believe that as I draw near to you, help all of us believe as we draw near and worship you, Lord, you are the one that will make us effective. What a wonderful place to just rest in. What a beautiful place promise, if we would just believe that, we'd rejoice in you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.